0: Let's look at Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. You remember that Jesus, uh, in chapter 3, had been baptized by John the Baptist... And then immediately following his baptism, remember that he was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness, into the Judean wilderness, which is just to the east of Jerusalem, east of the Mount of Olives. And as you go down the slope, uh, if you were to look at like a cross section, you've got uh, Jerusalem here, and then there's a Valley of Kidron, and then there's the Mount of Olives, and that goes out for quite a ways, and then slowly slopes down, and this is called the Judean wilderness, and that goes all the way down into The Jordan River Valley, where you would see the Jordan River emptying into the southern part of the, or northern part of the Dead Sea. And so Jesus is driven there and he is tempted by Satan himself for 40 days and 40 nights. And it says immediately following that, after he was tempted, and in fact, in verse 11, if you notice, that after he was tempted, tempted verse 11 tells us, then the, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, one thing you don't re- see in this gospel account is that between verses 11 and 12, there is literally uh, John's uh, account, chapter 1, verse 9, through the end of chapter 4, are interjected in this area. So we're talking about a period, uh, approximately a year has happened between verses 11 and 12, and that's basically the first four chapters of, of John's Gospel, specifically John chapter 1, verse 19, through the end of chapter 4. And so Jesus, in that time, has already met the woman at the well, remember. The woman at the well. in Samaria, where he leads her to Christ. She goes back into the town, and she basically evangelizes the town, and they come out, and they want to hear from him now. And we'll be be looking at that uh, this morning, too. Because this morning's message is fishers of men. And that's really what the Lord would have us to be, fishers of men. And when I say men, it means men and women. It means all people to be fishers of men, And we're going to be looking this morning at some comparisons between real fishing. For you guys who like to angle, we'll be looking at some similarities between fishing and also fishing for men. And God would have us to be fishers of men. And to be fishers of men, that means we have to be willing to go fish. And it's uh, not always an easy thing, is it, to go out? And so I, I believe the Lord is really wanting to stir us up, especially in the days that we live. We're getting close, folks. We're getting very close. And the Lord would have us to be lights in this very dark world and to be salt and light in this world. So notice with me, um, so just bear in mind that between verses 11 and 12, there's approximately, approximately a year has transpired. And again, that's John chapter 1, verse 19 through the end of chapter 4 of John's gospel. But now look at verse 12. We'll just read it through to the end of the chapter there. It says, Now when Jesus heard that John, and he's speaking of John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. In the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. That sounds like pretty good news, don't you think? And who is that light that was shown? was Jesus. Verse 17, it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's a really good message for us today because I believe that same message that Jesus preached at this time is the message that we still need to continue to preach, especially today. But notice what happens. He, He calls men to service, And Jesus, walking by the sea, verse 18, of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and they followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, Jesus called these brothers, and immediately they left their boat and their, and their father, notice, and they followed Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. And when his fame went throughout all Syria, and they were brought to him all, um, excuse me, his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond Jordan. And what an awesome chapter it is, isn't it? And God has called us to be fishers, fishers of men. We need to remember as we read through the Gospel of Matthew that it is presented not chronologically but topically. And that's why if you try to put events into order, it's not in chronological order in fact, there's some events that happened before, uh, and, you know, so the chronology doesn't fit. When you, uh, I would encourage you to get a harmony of the Gospels, and it will help you take all of the Gospel accounts and put them in sequence. And I, I pay special attention to that because I want to understand the context of everything and to put it in, in line, and it really helps my understanding that I've never had before, actually. And... Um, now between verses 11 and 12, you heard me say there was, about, uh, there was about 11 different events that occur. And most of them are in the Gospel of John. And I already gave you those scripture references. And, um, and then there's one, there, there's the, the final 11th uh, event that happened right before we get into uh, verse 12. And it, it's uh, in Luke chapter 3, verses 19 through 20. So just prior to our account, beginning in verse 12 here, was when John the Baptist was arrested by Herod Antipas and imprisoned at Mercurius. Mercurius was Herod's desert fortress and his royal palace on the eastern side of the Jordan River, uh, really just on the other side of the Dead Sea. And, um, and that's where his palace was, his desert fortress. And it was at this place that uh, John was imprisoned, and you can see that right on the uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea is this desert fortress where John the Baptist was not only imprisoned, but not long after that, he was also uh, beheaded uh, by Herod himself, uh, or by his guards. And you won't find the word machirus in the Bible anywhere. But the Jewish historian, and you've heard of Josephus, Flavius Josephus, he was a, a Jewish uh, historian, he tells us uh, about this, and, and this just kind of gets us into this idea of, of, of John being imprisoned. Um, he tells us in, his, uh, in the Jewish Antiquities, uh, book 18, chapter 5, uh, section 2, it says, accordingly, And here I'm quoting Josephus. Accordingly, he, speaking of John, was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machiris, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. So John was taken to this desert fortress and put to death. And, and this verse, chapter uh, 3 of Luke's gospel, it tells us, and, and this happened just prior to verse 12 that we're going to be looking at today. So I want to kind of give you the, the timeline of it. So Luke says, But Herod the Tetrarch, meaning Antipas, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for all the e- and for all the evils which he had done, also added this, above all, that he, shut, that he shut John up in prison. John was one of these men who uh, spoke truth to power. He wasn't afraid to speak to uh, someone who was in an authority. And, he, and I believe John did it in, in a way, regardless of the movies that you've probably seen, and I've seen some. Um, where it shows John just being really angry. He could have been, and he would be rightfully justified in doing so. But I know that John was being led by the Spirit in um, rebuking Herod Antipas for all of the evil things that he did. He, he held him accountable. He told him and, and, and made sure that he understood that his authority was given to him. It wasn't something that he earned and that um, belonged to him. No, it was on power. It was on loan, excuse me. God had given Herod that power, and John made sure that he understood where he ultimately stood, but he spoke truth to power. And don't be afraid to do that today either. You, you, do, it in, uh, you do it in the right way, of course. You do it with reverence. You do it with kindness. But we have to speak. We have to speak. Everyone is accountable no one is unaccountable. We are all accountable. But evidently, Herod uh, had to, uh, Herod Antipas, who was Herod the Great's son, one of his sons, he evidently divorced his first wife and unlawfully married his brother Philip's wife. But Leviticus tells us that you are not to uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. And it tells us in Leviticus 20, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And these are the kind of things that God has pronounced against that. And here Herod is uh, bucking against that law of God. And John would make sure that he knew about it. And out of his anger, and you can understand this man who's a ruler over a great Deal of area he gets angry at John, and instead of reasoning with him, instead of listening to him I believe he did listen to him, he didn't have a choice, I guess He finally got frustrated and angry, threw him into prison in this desert fortress in Macurus. And so look at uh, verse 12 now, where Jesus now begins his Galilean ministry. Up to this point, Jesus had been in Judea. He'd been in Judea, and now he's going to be traveling from the south of Israel. He's going to be going north now. And so Jesus, notice it says, when Jesus heard that, John had been put into prison. Now think about what that must make you feel like. Now Jesus wasn't worried about um, you know, getting caught himself. He wasn't afraid of death. He knew exactly why his, what, what his ministry was on the earth. Jesus understood what was at stake. But now that he knows that John is thrown into prison, there's a time that you need to just move on. And we're going to see Jesus doing that, certainly under the, under the direction of his father and certainly having the spirit of discernment, knowing when it's time to leave and when, it, when it's time to stay. And Jesus knew that very well. So he departed, notice, uh, to Galilee. And so he left, Judea, he left Judah in the south, down there by Jerusalem, uh, right to the north of the, of the Dead Sea there. And he departed there Uh, after he was baptized and tempted, and he went north. And by going to Galilee, Jesus fulfilled, again, the prophecy of Isaiah 9, which said this. And it ought not to surprise us that Jesus, or that Matthew, would be having Scripture here from the Old Testament for us, because that was one of the things that John wanted to do, one of his... Reasons for writing the Gospels to show that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the rightful heir to the throne of David. The rightful throne. And in this Gospel, other than Revelation, the Gospel of Matthew has more quotes from the Old Testament than any other book in the Bible. I think there's 96 quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. And in Revelation, it's even more. So there's a lot, and this is one of them. And, And notice what it says. Nevertheless... The gloom will not be upon her who was distressed, and as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And afterward, more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Notice what it says in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. And again, the, this fact supports, the scripture supports Matthew's design behind the whole gospel. But notice at the end of verse 12, it says that he departed to Galilee. And he did this not out of fear, but because if the Jews and the religious leaders had rejected his forerunner, they would reject Jesus as well. So he was going to take this opportunity to go now to the Gentiles after he has first ministered to his own people. And they rejected him. He would go to the Gentiles. And that's always been the way that it is. They first ministered to the Jews and then to the Gentiles in that order. Because the scriptures came by the Jews. And God wanted to minister to those people first. This very peculiar people that he had a great and has a great and wonderful uh, heritage and a future for them. He hasn't left them. He's still going to take care of them. But Jesus would go to the Gentiles and his fame would spread all throughout Syria, these uh, Gentile lands. And Jesus would come back to Jerusalem. He would come back to Jerusalem on a couple of different occasions, but he was to minister elsewhere for a season. And, um, uh, And remember that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's not just the Savior of the Jews. It's not just about the Jews, it's about everybody. And you and I are seated here today because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and many others who followed them. We are the beneficiaries of that ministry. Do you understand? Every one of us, if we could go back down in a a, a tree and find out the person who led you to Christ and then the person who led them to Christ, it would all go back to the apostles. It would all go back to perhaps Peter or Paul. Wouldn't it be interesting to find out your DNA? Which one of the apostles, you know? Because there is, just like a genealogy, there's a spiritual genealogy. And he's done that for us. And we are the beneficiaries of their ministry. And this is why we need to continue to go out and to share the gospel. Because what is the gospel, what what did Jesus tell us in the Great Commission? This is a verse we know very well. It's called the Great Commission. Go therefore, Jesus said, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, not high, but lo, I am with you. Always, even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. Now, let's take a look at something too because between verses 12 and 13, there are a couple of events that occurred as well. And this will lead us right into the reason for Jesus in verse 13, leaving Nazareth. It'll become obvious to you in just a moment. But between verses 12 and 13, we see Jesus healing a nobleman's son in Cana of Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, near Nazareth, not too far away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. But um, I wanted to spend, um, in fact, let me just show you um, a, a, a map of this. And you can see... In uh, right to the, the west of the Sea of Galilee, you have this um, area called Cana right here, and Nazareth was just uh, south of that, but this is where Jesus, in John's gospel, um, turned the water into wine, but it was at this place that Jesus healed a nobleman's son, and then immediately uh, following that... Uh, Turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, because we're going to spend a few minutes in this. Because this was the very next thing that happened. And I think it'll shed some light on why Jesus would leave Nazareth in verse 13. Because of what we're going to read right now. So Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, this occurred where Jesus went into the synagogue of Nazareth, and he read Isaiah 61. In fact, if you go to Israel with us, we go into the very synagogue, and and they found it, that Jesus did this miracle, and where he read this passage of Isaiah. We go right into the very synagogue. The, the, The tops of it have changed over the years, but the ground floor is the original floor that Jesus Uh, spoke on, and it's really exciting to be there in the very place where this happened. And so notice what it says in Luke 4, beginning in verse 16, it says, So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now what's really interesting, and many of you know this, He didn't finish the rest of Isaiah. Because the rest of that verse in Isaiah reads this. In Isaiah chapter 61 verse 2 it says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, that's where Jesus stopped, but then it says right after that, And the day of vengeance of our God. Why didn't Jesus quote the whole thing? Because he wasn't sent to bring judgment at that time. He came to preach the gospel. He came to heal the brokenhearted. But the reason he left it out was on purpose because there's yet coming a day. And we know that that day is at his second coming. He is coming and there will be vengeance. In fact, the tribulation period is God's vengeance upon the earth. And it will, it will um, come to fruition at its apex when Jesus returns from heaven physically to the earth at his second coming. That's why he left it out. And so as he's sharing this with them, he says the verse 20, then he closed the book and he gave it to the attendant and he sat down and notice all the eyes in the synagogue there in Nazareth were upon him and they were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine? <laughs> Their minds are blown. What? And he says it with authority. He says it with a straight face because it's fact. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness of him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. And whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. In other words, you've done it in Capernaum, do it here in Nazareth too. We want to see miracles, entertain us, do a card trick or something. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine through all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, which is the Gentiles to the north. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman, the Syrian, again, another Gentile. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They rose up and they thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill over which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. And then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. So now read verse 13 in our text this morning. And leaving Nazareth, well now we know why. Because he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And they were ballistic. And if you go to Israel, again, I'm going to make a lot of plugs for Israel because it's really exciting. It literally is on a hill. And if you get to the brow of that hill and somebody throws you off, you're pretty much finished. Okay? So now, notice verse 13. So now, leaving Nazareth, he came and he dwelt at Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. And Capernaum is in the northwestern uh, corner of the Sea of Galilee. It's a fishing town, and we visit this place also. It's wonderful. We go into the very synagogue where Jesus uh, preaches something else, where he uh, heals a man who was demon possessed. They they found that very synagogue. Many of the pillars are still standing. And Peter's house, believe it or not, is not too far away. According to the scripture, we visit that too. But notice verse 14, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet saying, and here again, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles in Zebulun and Naphtali. In the north, you remember, uh, just in case you don't know this, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, they were given allotments of land in Israel going back to Joshua. Joshua. Well, in the northern part of that, you can see that Naphtali and Zebulun, right there to the uh, west of the Sea of Galilee, this is the land. And Nazareth is, is not too far away from there. And Nazareth is right there um, in, the, in the land of Naphtali and, and, and Zebulun where Jesus grew up. Where what we just read happened, where they were going to throw him off of the cliff. But notice Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee of the Gentiles, really? Well, 750 years prior to this moment that we're reading about in Jesus' life, remember, the northern ten tribes were taken captive by the Assyrians. And it was Galilee of the Gentiles due partly because of the king of Assyria repopulating the area of Samaria that you can see uh, down further uh, in, that, in this large area Actually, I don't need to go there. But In the middle area there, he, he repopulated that land. After he led the children of Israel captive to Assyria, he repopulated that land. In fact, in 2 Kings, you might want to write this down, uh, this is what it says. This is what happened. It says, Then the king of Assyria brought people, from after he had taken the children of Israel, the northern ten tribes, captive, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, from Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. So the Jews, uh, from that time, they began to intermingle with these peoples, which they weren't supposed to do. And they began to intermarry, and that's why they, these Samarian, the, the Samaritans are the Samarian, uh, the people of Samaria. They were looked down upon because of their interbreeding with these Gentile nations. And now you can understand why the Jews wouldn't go through Samaria. They wouldn't go through this area. In, um, they wouldn't, if they were going from down here in Judea, if they were going to go to Galilee for any reason, they wouldn't go through Samaria because it was a place of the half-breeds. They were looked down upon because of their moral failures. Because of their race. You thought race and bigot- bigotry was only something that happened. No, it happened everywhere, and it's been alive and well. And so what they would do is, instead of going from Judea, that what they would do is, instead of going through Samaria, this disgusting place that nobody wanted to have anything to do with, they would cross over the Jordan into Perea, over to the east of the Jordan, go all the way up, and then cross over again, going west across the Jordan River, into Galilee, and most people would do that because they didn't want to have anything to do with the Samaritans. They were considered an unclean people. And I bring this up because, remember, when we were in John, we looked at that. But Jesus went through Samaria. Turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter 4, because a Samaritan woman was there. And we're just going to look at the first nine verses of this, and you'll see the uh, the climate, the attitude of that time period. Notice in John 4, it says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus... Made and baptized more disciples than John, though he himself did not baptize, but as disciples, he left Judea and departed. He departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go, notice. If you have a King James, it says he must needs go through Samaria. But he needed to go through Samaria. And why is that? We'll see. So he came to a city of Samaria, this area that the king of Assyria had repopulated with with Gentiles. And the Jews had intermingled with them and having offspring... So he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of land where Jacob gave to his son. Now Jacob's well was there. Remember, Jesus met a woman there, and a woman of Samaria, verse 7, came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And notice the woman's response, giving very clear understanding of the attitude of the people of this time. She says, Are you, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. (laughs) So Jesus, in the the account there, then leads her to salvation and through faith in him. And immediately his disciples show up. And what does his disciples say in verse 27? They said, at this point the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. But no one said, why do you... What do you seek or why are you talking with her? The reason for this is because it was taboo for a rabbi or for a holy man to be talking privately with a woman. And here Jesus is doing that. Not only that, she was a a woman of questionable morality because she's already had five different men in her life. And not only that, but she's also a Samaritan, which means her upbringing, her breeding was mixed. So even the disciples are learning about this whole idea. Jesus didn't have a problem with it, but the disciples' were like, "Why are you talking to her? A woman, and she's a Samaritan? Questionable morals? What are you doing, Jesus?" But we see the attitude, but see, God loves everyone, doesn't He? Everyone is a candidate for salvation. It doesn't matter the skin color. It doesn't matter your race, because guess what? We are all of the human race, singular. the human race. We are all in this together, regardless of the pigment color of our skin, regardless of all of that stuff, regardless of the demographics, we are all one in Christ. We all came from Adam. We all came from Adam. One human race. And if you've got a problem with race or bigotry or the color of somebody's skin or where they've come from, you really need to go back and seek the Lord. Because that kind of attitude does not belong in the church. We should never look upon anybody, regardless of any difference that we may have, and look down upon them. We are all one human race. I wish the schools would teach that. Because that is the truth. Because Christianity and a life subjected and submitted to Christ and his word is the answer to racism and bigotry that we see all around us. In our country and in other countries, it's not just for here. In Romans chapter 10, what does it tell us? For the scripture says, Whoever believes on Christ will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, for the same Lord above all is rich to all who call upon him. Everyone, we are all in this together. Would to God that we all just put our differences aside and recognize, hey, I got a white skin, somebody else has a darker skin. So what? What? So what? We are people. We are all created in the image of God and he loves us all. There is one race. Don't let anybody tell you that all oh, there is different. There's differences, no doubt. It all happened in, in, at the, you know, in Genesis 11, when the, at the Tower of Babel, when you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they all scattered it different parts. And within our DNA, there's enough room in our DNA structure for these variabilities and skin colors and pigments and different things of, of uh, adapting to small things and physical changes. It, it, it happens. It's all there in our DNA. We're we're, we're one. In Christ, and we're one human race. I wish the schools again and the universities would embrace this. They're trying everything—critical race theory. Oh, because you're white, you're—you're—you know—you need to go back. You you need to denounce your whiteness. You're—you're a—you're a bigot from birth. Does that create a problem, or does it solve a problem? It creates a problem. They're creating problems. When if they would just let the church of, of, of God to go in and minister, it, it, you know, even if it's just for an assembly every quarter, to <laughs> go in there and tell them how much God loves them and, and to share with them what I'm sharing with you, how different would things be? But they don't have the guts to do it. They don't have the guts to do it. And folks, we need to be vocal. So I'll just leave it there. And here's what it says, Romans 2.11. There is no partiality with God. He doesn't look upon skin color. He sees people that, are, that need salvation. That's what he sees. He is not partial. He's not a respecter of persons. When Peter spoke to Cornelius, a Gentile and his gathering in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, what did he say to them? In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. Peter being a Jew and Cornelius and his family being Italian or from, or from another country, they were Gentiles. Peter said, I perceive that God is no different. The same spirit of God that fell upon me fell upon you. Well, duh. Why is that? Because we're one human race. One human race, and we are all under God. Indivisible with domestic. (laughs) So I was going to go on there, I forgot. So anyway, notice in verse 16, now back in our text, it says, The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those um, who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. And again, this is... uh, Just a quote from the Old Testament, which we've already looked at. But notice verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, and here's the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word repent literally means to think differently. It means to reconsider, to turn yourself in a direction from this way and turn and go the other direction. That's what repentance is. Turning away from our sin and this is exactly the same thing that Jesus's forerunner, John the Baptist, did. He said, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." And Jesus, when he sent out his disciples, he says, "Don't go in the way of the Gent-, I says, uh, do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather first, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." That was the first place that he wanted his disciples to minister was to them, to the lost house of Israel, to the, to, the, to the Jews first. And then once they rejected that message and they rejected the Messiah, Jesus, we know what happened. Because Paul and Peter, they were sent and many others with them and they made disciples of all nations. And see, so the church today needs to be preaching repentance and that the kingdom, of, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And regardless of what you might think, Jesus is coming soon. The signs are all around us. They are. Let me just give you, and I've shared a whole message on this about the one world government that's forming before our eyes. Why do you think the Dutch are rising up with their their tractors and driving them down? Why do you think they're doing that? They're resisting something they know is coming and is trying to have an influence, and it's happening in our country too. Communism is taking over, and that's why we got to stand up and speak the truth, right? But the one world... the one-world government, that, that, that's one of the, the hallmarks of the things that we've been reading in Revelation. The one-world digital economy. Yes, it has to be digital in order for it to be worldwide. And they're trying very hard, and it's coming. And the one-world religion. You and I believe Jesus Christ, and he, he alone. But there are people who believe, well, Andy, all roads lead to God. You know, if I'm a good person and I help the old lady across the street, No. None of that matters. It's all about Christ. See, every, everyone apart from Christ and Christians, they're kind of holding hands and singing, I'd like to teach the world to sing. That's what they're doing. And once the real church, the true born-again believers are raptured and lifted off this earth and vanished, you will see, we won't see, but the world will see a one-world religion quickly coming together because they're going to be scared out of their mind Finally, we got rid of these fundamental people. Finally, we got rid of them. Now we can progress in our progressive politics. Yes, and I did that for a reason. (laughs) So, notice, these, thing, these three things that I just shared with you are clear hallmarks in the book of Revelation in chapter 13, 17, and 18. But notice, now in verses 18 through 22, Jesus calls these fishermen, and this is actually the second time that Jesus called Peter and Andrew, the very first time, and we don't have time to go there, but the very first time it's written that um, Jesus spoke to these two brothers was in John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. This event in John happened prior to this moment that we're looking at here in our passage today. It was an initial meeting. But now, and and that's where we believe they they came to faith in Christ. But now in verses 18 through 22, this is now Jesus calling them to service. First, they had to get saved, and now he's going to call them into ministry or to service. And and, and it's it's clear by the fact in in chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. That's a call to service. So look at verse 18 now. It says, Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee. He saw these two brothers, Simon, Called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And notice what happened. They immediately left their nets and they followed him. Notice here and also in verse 20, it says that they immediately left their nets. They didn't wait until all their ducks were in a row, until their 401k was mature. They didn't do any of those things. It wasn't a convenient thing for them to do because as they left their nets, they left their father with the business. The father is thinking to himself, now I got my boys involved in this thing and I want to retire and they're going to continue to work it. But God says, I have a different plan (laughs) and Zebedee you're probably not going to like it but there were other people who could help Zebedee but God had a plan for Zebedee's two boys James and John and they were to follow Jesus notice they didn't him and haw about it they left they immediately left their nets because they were already they already believed in him now the time came that they were going to be called to service and so um, you know and what is keeping you from doing the Lord's work What is keeping us from doing the Lord's work? Regardless of how old you are, actively seek those things that are near and dear to the Lord's heart. And we know a few of those things. We know that caring for the fatherless and the widow, caring for the poor, caring for the stranger, these are things that are near and dear to the Lord's heart. And obviously, we need to do this in love and with great discernment, especially in the days that we live in. We have to be very careful about how we do things. But notice verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee. So he's got Andrew and Peter. Now he goes a little further, sees two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and notice, immediately they left their boat and they followed him. They left their father and they followed Jesus. And immediately they left the boat and followed Jesus. Concerning this verse... There was a, a wonderful um, brother in the Lord, commentator, by the name of F.F. F. Bruce, and he said this concerning this immediately leaving their nets and following Christ. He says, The claims of the kingdom of heaven were paramount. They were most important and imperious. Neither family ties nor business interests might stand in their way. And that is a really tough pill for some people. I remember Pastor Jeff had, he was really the, the one who would take over his father's uh, business, breed, tool, and die, if you remember. And he was groomed to be filling in once his dad retired. But the Lord got a hold of Jeff and, and, and brought him into the ministry. And his father, all of a sudden, all the years that he had spent grooming his son to fill that place and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God has a plan, you got to trust him. And eventually his father accepted it. And I remember him before he passed. We did his funeral together, and his mom as well, and his sister. But there's nothing more important in a life than to serve Jesus, to follow him Again, the Great Commission. We, we read it earlier, but notice the three things that we are to do concerning the Great Commission. Number one, we're to go and make disciples. Number two, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you make a disciple, you bring them to Christ, that they are saved. But then after that, you baptize them, and that's why we have baptisms here. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, and then what do we do? We continue to teach them to observe all the things that Jesus has commanded us. And how do we know that? By reading the Bible systematically, book by book, chapter by chapter, line upon line, not skipping anything, not adding anything to it, but reading it the way it was meant to be read. No other book do you read and just go in and read a page and then go to the end and read a page. No, you read it from the beginning to end. And if you're real smart, you look at the, the table of contents to see how it's laid out. But when you think of someone who goes out fishing as these men were they go out and they don't know if or what they are going to catch i remember being in as a as a young kid in growing up on pine island in southwest florida my grandfather and i and my brother we used to go out fishing you know and this is back in the early you know 80s and and stuff like that and i remember we would go out in places remotely remote places that people haven't really been to. And we'd be fishing. we catch fish. We didn't even know what this thing looked like. My grandfather, who was a, an expert fisherman, we, I, I'd, I'd pull something up, and he's like, what is that? We have no idea what we're going to catch. We wanted to catch, like, redfish, red snapper, maybe snook, or a sheephead, or sugar trout, or something like that. But you pull up this alien. You don't even know what this thing looks like. It's probably undiscovered. A scientist would going, we didn't know this exists. It's the missing link. no. <laughs> I'm only kidding. There is no missing link. But three things about fishing, <laughs> four things about fishing, and we got to look at this. Number one is there is a suspense about the act of fishing, isn't there? If you're a fisherman, guys, you know when you go out, you don't know what you're going to catch. You may throw your bait in. You have no idea what you're going to get. I wanted to get a red snapper, but instead I got some alien from outer space. And I'm not kidding. There were some fish. I, it looked, I Crazy stuff. Never seen before in the history of the world, you're pulling up from the ocean. It's crazy. But there's a suspense about the act of fishing. There is hopefully, and hopefully, the bait on the hook is attractive to the fish. And thirdly, when the fish does bite and the fisherman hauls in their catch, they are rewarded for their efforts, aren't they? They're rewarded for their efforts. Cause now they can provide for their own family And they can sell those fish to others Who have needs as well And there's also, fourthly a re- You're rewarded by the thrill of the catch It's a, it's a, it's a trip to fish If you've ever been to Florida and you fish for sheephead, those things that are about, they can get really big and they're white and black and they're stripes like this and they, they put up a fight like you would not believe and they are the most fun fish to catch. You feel like you got a whale by the tail when you catch these things because they're very strong. But there's some parallels when fishing for men. Some parallels, and i like to share some of those with you. And there's a reason why I'm bringing this up, and it just so happens to be where we're at in the Scripture. I, think, I love how the Lord puts that all together, totally apart from me because I'm not that bright, as you know. <laughs> but notice some parallels. There is a suspense about the act of fishing. You don't know what you're going to get. When we open our mouths and begin to share the gospel or anything pertaining to salvation through Christ, you do not know how this person is going to respond, do you? And if you've done it at all, you understand that there's a myriad of things that happen. Sometimes people will be listening and they're like, you know, I never heard that before. I've been going to church all my life at St. Mary's and I've never heard the gospel. Tell me more. And then other people are like, hey, you know, if it works good for you, that's fine. You know, and other people are really angry. They'll just slam the door. You just never know what you're going to get. You never know what you're going to get. And sometimes you'd be like, the person just breaks down and starts crying, and and you're like, oh my goodness. (laughs) You never know what you're going to get when you fish for people. And hopefully, what you have on your hook is attractive to the fish. Fish don't bite unless they like what's on the hook. They're not going to go after something that they don't like. And it's true, the gospel isn't a front to man, isn't it? uh, Corinthians tells us the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. We must remember to share the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God, right? And there is a temptation to sugarcoat things that we know are going to press the buttons a little bit, but you've got to press the buttons. The buttons have to be pressed, That's the teeth of the gospel. Never remove the teeth from the gospel. They need to know why they need to be saved. You need to be saved because you're a wretch on your way to hell. Yeah, that's true. I was a wretch on my way to hell. Somebody needed to tell me that and then tell me, but I got good news for you. Jesus loves you. He died for your sin. Do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Yes, I do. Well, pray with me. Do you want to receive him in your heart? Yes, I do. I'm sick of my life. But we must do this with compassion, with love, not anger or self-righteousness. And people catch on, pun intended. They catch on and are more discerning about our motives than we might think. Are we doing what we're doing just to put a notch on our belt or on our bedpost at night? Got another one. No, it's not about that at all. Do we share out of a true love and compassion as Jesus did? If we can't or don't, we need to go back and pray and ask God to give us a right heart. And is our life attractive like the bait on the hook for a hungry fish? As I share with people that know me, uh, is is the way I conduct ourselves, is it attractive? Has it been attractive? Do we live modestly? Do we guard our tongue? Are we honest and helpful? Is our life one of self-control? Do we have a rotten, filthy mouth like I used to have? What is our witness to the unbeliever? Matthew tells us, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's good for nothing. You are the light of the world, Jesus said. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine that they may see your good works and glorify Calvary Chapel? No, glorify their father, our father, your father, which is in heaven. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Our fruit is the witness, the things that are hanging off the branches. Jesus said, you are the branches. I want your witness to be so that even though your message is tough and people are gonna struggle with it, show them, let let the gospel live through your life. And if you do that, it is attractive to people. Because you can be nice and kind. You don't have to be nasty and holding up signs. You're you're, you're going to hell. (laughs) People do that. That sounds attractive to me. Sign me up. No one's going to come to Christ if you, you treat him like that. Jesus said, or in Psalm 1, He shall be like a tree, one who meditates in the law of the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf shall also not wither. The leaf speaks of the witness of the branch of the tree. If the tree is withering, that means that there's something wrong in the root of the tree. But if the fruit is attractive, that tree is healthy. And that's what God wants us to be. But we can't be healthy apart from him. We can't devise our own way. No, we have to follow the master. We have to follow Jesus, our creator, our our savior. And fishermen, thirdly, they're, they're rewarded for their efforts, aren't they? That's another difference, a, a commonality between fishing physically and fishing for men. Fishermen are rewarded for their efforts, and you and I are also rewarded for our efforts. And First Thessalonians Paul would say, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Yes. The reward of seeing somebody come to Christ is so wonderful. And yes, there are even rewards beyond this earth. The Bible tells us, and you've heard me say this before, the Bema seat uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where it talks about uh, each man's work will be known by what it is. And some will be uh, you know, wood, hay, and stubble. and other words, others will be gold, silver. And all the stuff that was useless will be burned up. But the things that were done in the right heart, within the, within the spirit of God, those things will endure, and you will be rewarded for those things that God that you allowed God to do in and through you. We will be rewarded. There's a reward. And there's a reward for bringing somebody to Christ. And is there any other thing I mean, and, and that's the, the last thing, there are also rewards by the thrill of the catch. If you've led somebody to the Christ, you know what a thrilling thing that is, especially if they really swallowed the hook. Because then you start, you see their life change. They were a heroin addict. They were losing everything. They they were completely broke. They were on uh, SSI and they were, you know, sleeping around and crawling into little holes all over the place with needles in their arms. And all of a sudden you, you share the gospel with them and they clean up. They start coming to church. They start wanting to read the Bible. They're here every single time the doors are opening. They're talking to other people. They're bringing other people in. Their life is totally blown (laughs) and lit up. What an utter thrill to bring somebody to Christ. There's rewards, and there is a thrill in the catch. To see the whole world begin to change, their whole world to change for the better, to see them raising their hands in worship, to see their relationships with their spouses, their kids improve, to see them really discover the purpose of their life, there is nothing greater. That is why we are going out. And I would, I would encourage you not just to take this time that we're, we're doing this. You know, we do this as a church together, and there's, there's, there's good reason for that, and it's good for us. But don't ever stop. Personally, personally, as a, as a person, wherever you go, be open. Be willing to share. Is it uncomfortable? Yes, especially to break the ice with a complete stranger. You know a good way to do it, honestly? If you see somebody, just go up to them and say, hey, you know something? The Lord put you on my heart. Can I just pray for you? And they're going to be like, "I never, nobody's ever prayed for me. And then keep it short and sweet. And then pray for them. And chances are, you've earned the right to speak to them a little bit more. And they'll be like, wow, nobody's ever prayed for me. And then you can say, well, you know what? Jesus loves you. But we gotta come to him on his terms. I'm a sinner. And you are too. But Christ died for our sins. Will you believe in him today? Will you trust Jesus? He paid the price. See how simple that is? Less than a minute you've you've won somebody, or at least had them an opportunity to break the ice. But we gotta break the ice. There are people perishing all around us and see, that's why we do what we do. And after all, if if Jesus saved me from an immeasurable hell, which he did, and you as well, if he did all of that and I have this great future ahead of me, regardless of what happens to me physically, I've got a future that's going to be for eternity where there are pleasures forevermore, the Bible says. If I really believe that, Why wouldn't I want to share that with somebody else? And they may not receive it. Again, you don't know what you're gonna catch. But you gotta throw out the bait. You gotta throw out the bait. You don't know what you're gonna get. You may get somebody falling on the ground with the crying with their, you know, convulsively, and you're like, oh my goodness, what do I do with this? Or they may slam the door in your face. Doesn't matter. We're not even We don't even have to worry about the results. The results are up to him. But what we are supposed to do is to be willing to share. Let him worry about the results. Don't take it personally. They hated him. They crucified him. They're probably going to hate you. You're probably not going to be crucified, but you may get sneered at. Your door may be shut in your face. You may be passed over a promotion. You may even get fired because you won't take the vaccination. And some people have here in this building. Hmm. But that's why we're going out. Let's finish up here these last three verses. Notice, Jesus went about all Galilee. Notice, teaching in their synagogues. Teaching the word of God, teaching it. And then also notice, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Preaching is different from teaching. Preaching is exhorting very strongly to adhere to those things that God is saying. Teaching is teaching. I've done both today. I've taught you and I've preached to you. I haven't healed anybody. I don't have that. I mean, that's up to, up to the Lord. But notice that, uh, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Talk about divine health care. Wouldn't that be awesome? I'll sign up for that. And you know what? You can. When you get sick, let me just challenge you on something. And uh, if you get sick, what's the first thing you do? Yeah, hopefully you pray. That's the right answer. I mean, if you're really sick and you got to go to the hospital, go to the hospital. If you need a doctor, get a doctor. Don't you know? We're not playing games here, and you're not you know you're not somehow circumventing faith because you're seeking a doctor. That's nonsense. If you're sick, go see a doctor. But on your way to the doctor, why don't you lift? Why don't you pray? Ask somebody else to pray with you. And, and, and actually in James it tells us to, to come forward and have the ushers or have the elders anoint you with oil. That they, they pray for the sick and that they might be delivered from their illness. Why don't we do that anymore? I haven't, it's been a couple years. Why not do that if you're sick? See what the Lord will do. Being obedient to the scripture rather than running to the pill chest. Rather than running to the, the hospital or the doctor, again, do that if you need to, but maybe the first thing we need to do, if we're able, and we should be able, is to pray. Get other people to pray for us. Ask the elders to anoint with oil. I don't get it either, but that, if we are obedient to the word, why not wait and see what he does? As we pray over you, and there's nothing special in the oil. It's not some kind of abracadabra, you know, not some wand we wave over. No, it's just symbolic of what we're asking the Spirit of God through that oil. Symbolic of that oil. Holy Spirit, would you touch this person and heal them? Why don't we do that anymore? Don't be afraid to ask. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, it says, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon possessed and epileptics. Yes, the, the word here is moonstruck. They didn't understand epilepsy, but uh, they, they called it moonstruck because, you know, when you see somebody in an epileptic seizure, it looks pretty weird. They didn't know what epilepsy was. So they just called it moonstruck. But the translators translated it epileptics and paralytics. And notice, he healed them. He healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. And what an amazing thing, isn't it? But let's be about our Father's business again. I, f- I fear that, not, 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 I'm not speaking directly to you, okay? But just understand that you know across America, and even maybe across the world, but especially in America we've really lost our bearings. We're more interested in building a big building and having a megachurch, which we are not, but people can be, and having this big thing and doing all these great things, and yet there's nothing going on in here. And there's no desire for the lost anymore. And see, folks, now is the time that we need to be fishers of men. We need to be fishers of men. We need to go out And we need to catch. We need to throw out the bait. And there's a wonderful reward to see somebody come to Christ, to see their face lit up, to see their life completely changed, to see them being rid of diseases and to see their life being completely transformed. There's no greater feeling than that in the world. Because I know that's what happened to me. And that's what God wants to use us for. Will you be available To let God do that in your life? Are you willing, brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus? Will we again open our mouths? Will we again think outwardly? Will we again think outside of these four walls? Bring them in. Bring them in. Bring them into the net. Let God capture them. They need to be captured. I'm so glad that I was captured by God's net as He threw it out over the area where I lived, and I just happened to be the fool in the net. And He caught me. So glad to be caught. Are you glad to be caught? Because when He takes you into His ownership, He treats you so well, He treats you with dignity and love and respect. He doesn't browbeat you. He doesn't make you feel guilty about your sin. That's all been settled at the cross. Now you can enter into the Beatitudes, the life of Christ, the kingdom ideas, the kingdom attitudes, which we'll get into next week. That's what He wants. Aren't you glad to be a Christian? I'm so blessed. Be encouraged today and don't let the world beat you up. Come to the Lord. Get on your knees and pray. Ask God to heal you and give you a new heart. Even if you've known him for some time, just get on your knees and say, Lord, I'm an old person. I don't know what to do anymore. I can't even walk that far, but what can I do? And God's, God's got an answer for you and it may be surprising to you. Can still use you regardless of your age, whether you're young or old. Sometimes the best thing to do is just be a prayer warrior. If you're if you're sedentary and you can't get up and around like you used to, believe me, pray for the body of Christ. Pray for your pastor. Pray for your pa- the pastors in this church. Pray for the pastors in this country that they be lions at the pulpit, loving lions not just biting people in half, but loving them, telling them the truth. So let's stand together and let's pray. Hmm. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, what a joy and a treat it is to to read your word. Lord, I feel like I could just go on for another hour. And so, Father, we, we just uh, pray that, Lord, the things that we heard, this passage, Lord, that you would continue to challenge us in it. And again, Lord, we belong to you. You've purchased us with a price. Help us to, be, uh, we pray that you get your money's worth and the cost was the blood of Christ. Lord, may you get every ounce out of us that you desire, Lord. May we glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen.